Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. Hey, hey, Becky. What's happening? What's up, John? We got a Brooklyner in the house today. And he's a rebel. (laughs) And Newsweek said he was a rebel. And he was on the cover of Newsweek. We've had rebels, but we haven't had anybody that Newsweek called a rebel. I mean, we're in a different league today, but we love (laughs) rebels. We talk about being a rebel and being somebody that kind of steps out. And I'm so excited to talk to Matthew today because he is the poster child of it. It's going to be a different kind of conversation, but in all the best ways. So we're really excited. We've got Matthew Zachary with us today. Hey, Matt, welcome to the show. Hello. He's waving in his very... <laughs> he talks in falsetto the whole time, too. <laughs> Get ready for it. So let me tell you a little bit about Matt. He is a 25-year brain cancer survivor. He's the found of the groundbreaking nonprofit. You probably heard of this, Stupid Cancer. Love that and, name. Yep. Creator of the world's first health podcast that gave a voice to millions. Matthew's known firsthand today that healthcare conversations are too polite. And, you know, Becky and I have spent the last decade in healthcare philanthropy, so we can't wait for this conversation <laughs> so it's gonna much. It's going to be fun. We mentioned about Newsweek bragging on him as a cancer rebel. Deepak Chopra called him a peace healer. And now he's officially launched kind of the next um, moment of his career, I would say, with off-script media to build community and isolation, amplify voice, and just improve quality of life for patients and caregivers. He's got a really cool story. So, Matt, welcome to the podcast. So, so happy. You're here. It is. It's going to be awesome. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Would you kind of give us a little bit of your story? Um, I've gotten to watch it online through some videos, but I'd love it if you gave us kind of the cliff notes of of your journey, man. Sure. So there's three very brief chapters in the Tolstoyan tome that is my insanity. <laughs> I'm on my 11th life just to bookend this. So I was born and raised in New York. I was classically trained uh, on the piano to be a film composer by the age of 11. I wanted to go to undergraduate to be the next John Williams. I got into USC. And then six months before my graduation, I lost fine motor coordination in my left hand and went misdiagnosed for six months, finally was diagnosed with brain cancer. And I was like, ah, there's something wrong with me. And then, oh, crap, there's something wrong with me. So I was given six months to live. We called the grad school. I, I worst day of my life back then was like, I'll never be John Williams and wound up living for any reasons you could figure out. No one knows why. And when plan B becomes plan A, I happened to fix Macintoshes, a very niche talent in the 1990s. (laughs) So I wound up becoming like tech support at a bunch of creative ad agencies that had Macintoshes that were running all the design programs back then. And I spent a decade rising in the ranks and becoming a, uh, chief marketing officer and brand teams and all sorts of fun stuff. And along the way of chapter two, I met a guy who also had brain cancer in his twenties, was bald from New York city and went to my alma mater. And I didn't know him. Is this so, your long lost oh twin? We, we might as well be brothers from another mother. Totally. Uh, <laughs> but I'm like, how do I not know you? And the fact that yeah. it took seven years to know I wasn't alone, believing I was the only 20 something with cancer for seven years in New York city was an aha moment. And then he opened up this uh, Wizard of Oz curtain, and behind him was an entire nascent Margaret Mead group of, of angry rapscallions trying to create Margaret something Mead. for Gen Xers in cancer that wasn't yeah. about kids 
and ribbons and old people. I'm like, count me in. And I was uh, incubated uh, by this incredible group of talented researchers and advocates and nonprofit founders and, 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 and nurses and social workers and policy folks in the Beltway. And I realized that I, it was worth it to quit my career and try to start a movement for Gen Xers and cancer. Uh, we got a we got a bad rap even today with the what what do they call it the the invisible generation. It goes like Gen Z, millennials, boomers. Like where are we? Right. So this was same <laughs> thing. They forgot about us. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, preach. Right. We're we're Gen Xers. We matter. So you're only talking to cancer. one here, but I hear you. Yeah, so Becky's on that <laughs> bandwagon. <laughs> so I channeled Homer Simpson and I called the dope stupid cancer, and it just really took off as an idea. But I think where we start chapter three was I had a very unique opportunity before the internet. This was like Friendster days and dial-up AOL CD days in 2006. One of my mentors at the time, her name is Selma Schimmel, rest in peace. She ran the only AM terrestrial radio show that covered cancer conferences, mm -hmm. like old school radio. So Selma had the opportunity to take her AM radio show to the internet so internet radio was just getting started. And she said, why don't you do a show about young adult cancer? And I said, okay. So the stupid cancer show launched on May 28, 2007. And because it was the only thing around, I glommed up like a year's worth of episodes in three weeks. Oh my and gosh. Every, <laughs> and that was live. Remember live? Like yeah. if you missed it, you're done. You got to wait 30 years for friends to be on Hulu. <laughs> that was it. So... That it made it so niche, and there was a live chat room. We did Q and A. This was before Twitter. There were no hashtags. That is so progressive. I mean, amazing. really, it was. Yeah, I mean, we called the Progressive Cancer Talk the original, ha not hashtag, but hashtags. Progressive Cancer Radio was the initial model for it, and then it just became the voice of young adult cancer after a while because we started amassing hundreds of thousands of listeners. Um, again, only game in town, only voice in town. And, you know, I, I did college radio. I'm an NPR junkie. I kind of knew how to program what it was like. Intro, uh, interview, new segment, then a full story, and then an outro. Very easy to get done. And then it just became over 14 years and 400 episodes and thousands of guests, its own media phenomenon in its time. And once podcasts became the thing, the, like the new Don't Start a Blog don't start this. Don't start this. Now don't start a podcast, right? <laughs> right? Everyone too easy to do this. But I think that defines my chapter three is getting stupid cancer to the level it achieved and the innovation and the disruption and the fact that it just challenged everything and listened to its community to grow instead of assuming we needed to do this. And it wasn't about research. It wasn't about cure. There was no fundraising threats to people joining us because they're all dying broke cancer people. It just was a thing but the radio show was what i'm most proud of to define it and then chapter four is where i'm at now i exited and i'm building a, a, a sort of an audio broadcast company focused on advocacy messaging communications and just calling it all sorts of stupid bs that doesn't have to be bs i just think as you have walked through chapters one through four um it supports absolutely everything that we say here, which is community is everything. And it can positively move mountains. If And, and it, it speaks to the fact that 
not only was it niche, which is so um, untoward to me, because it's like if you have several hundred thousand people that are coming to you, that's not just a niche. That's like <laughs> that's, a, that, that's like a wave of, right. of people that have been saying, hey, I have felt alone and I have these questions and I've, I don't know how to advocate for myself. I don't know the questions to have. So talk a little bit about you know, what your listeners were saying and what they were, what, what were they coming uh, to get from your podcast other than just being around like-minded people who have, who are experiencing the same things. Talk about the healing nature of it. Well, I mean, I was one of the few people back in those days that came from advertising and marketing. So I understood brand mm-hmm. and most nonprofits are either named after someone who is alive or passed away or have some esoteric too many syllables and not enough vowels that don't make any sense. <laughs> and I mean, Livestrong was really a good example of yeah. good branding. And obviously Lance knew Phil Knight and I could give them all this money. They were very well packaged. They became like the first lifestyle brand. Obviously they imploded. But mm-hmm. I think the value of any good brand is you you find a way to associate yourself with it no matter whether it means something to you or not. So the two big hits that I learned from marketing were you never give someone what they want. You give them what they didn't know they needed or wish they had had at a moment in time that they wished they had had it. I built it for myself because it's what I needed and wished that I had had in 96. I didn't know how alone I was until I knew that there was something for me, two points, with no judgment and no stigma. And that's what the community stood for. And we had a manifesto. Who had a manifesto? What nonprofit that manifesto? What year was that? 2007, 8, 9 was when all this stuff started to really manifest. Yes, we are Love huge it. manifesto fans. Yeah, we had we wrote yeah. one at our last nonprofit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Livestrong had a manifesto. So clearly, what is it? Good artist copy, great artist steal. I basically took the same idea, but I pivoted it to be niche for this audience. And and it was a little, it was a little evergreen. It still manages to hold up today to history, but it the gist was that, you know, uh, there are no good cancers. And the playing field is leveled when we, when we look at what we have in common. And it just was this raise all boats idea that, yes, we're focused on Gen Xers and, and, and then emerging millennials. But this was about dignity and equity and parity. If cancer is going to suck, it should suck equally for everyone and not worse or better for anyone. And it's not about pitting kids and old people. It's not better or worse. It's different. And here's why. And it's a space. It's a space to come and it's like, lay your burdens here and (laughs) go ahead and be unapologetically mad or, or whatever you're feeling right now, because there's a safety in that space right here. And just to feel like, I mean, I, I have to believe that when you have cancer, I have not, but you must feel so out of control. And it's like, if you could come into this community, you can control one thing, you know, as you sort of define what you need and what your community can give to you. I just think it's a really progressive thought that you had in a time when no one was doing this. Absolutely. And I hear, I mean, I hear some threads of some, some of Apple. I'm such an Apple fan guy. This is probably no news to a lot of people, but he's dressed like Steve jobs right now (laughs) of building what you know, the world needs kind of concept. I'm curious what your perspective is in terms of you knew, you knew who you wanted to serve, but you weren't exactly sure what was going to resonate. Right. Or did you say, no, I need to build this community. Which, which way was it? And how did you kind of flesh out the programs around that? 2007 is its own book waiting to be written as just a single standalone year. 
I launched a, a homegrown website that I coded myself because I learned HTML in 1991, and oh my gosh. there was nothing On back Dreamweaver? then. That was the... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. no, it wasn't even. Slicing oh my god, Photoshop kudos for files. Dreamweaver. No, this was like raw text, like basic level oh text editing, and yes. I still code today. It's like Hello but, World yeah. type websites, oh right? God. Yeah, exactly. It was a, a RAM 20, 30, go to go to 10 kind of Atari stuff or Commodore Julie, 64. You were in the crib. Atari. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I'm lost. load dollar on. sign <laughs> <laughs> really channeling our total. J Jonathan's like geeking out right now. We're going to be best friends. But I mean, again, we take for granted all the like, oh, it's, everyone's disruptive today. This was very new back then. So when I launched this website, it was nothing more than like an, uh, a 411 of all the young adult cancer resources no one ever had aggregated before under one roof. It wasn't a Google search mechanism. It was just a list a yellow pages and within a week of launching this website which at the time was just called i'm too young for this.org and our our slogan remember slogans before hashtags was just stupid cancer and i don't keyword. know how this happened <laughs> new york times wrote a big piece about it it's still online about you know this guy matt I think they used to call me the, the cancer tainer because I was able to play piano again for some reason. Oh my God. Launched this cancer hub, tainer. hub, remember hubs yeah. for young adult cancer. And the New York Times did a piece on this tiny mom and pop from my bedroom. And then, like a week later, the journal reached out and said, What is all this? And then that summer, Time Magazine named this little crappy website one of the best 50 of the year. And we ranked higher than LinkedIn and Yelp for 2007. Wow. And then Hollywood came because they're producing this. I mean, I can't. It's its own book. Lifetime was producing a TV show about a character who had brain cancer. And they brought me in as a script advisor to make sure that the show honored young adult cancer. And in two scenes that we shot, they mirrored some of the workshops and the, the, the happy hours that we were doing in real life. So this is just 07. Wow. So I was not expecting this, but that was the leapfrog. And the radio show played the catalyst through all of that. So I had no expectation that it was going to just be before the word viral was viral. This is old school analog grassroots viral. Wow. And it's so That's cool awesome. because it's it's not just about like your success, which is so wonderful and we're so happy for you, but it's like it really is creating this level and a wave of awareness that just passes through all these multi-channel pieces. And all of a sudden, you I'm sure you're seeing people that just kind of, I, their eyebrows go up and they say, wow, there there's my people, there's my community. And, and it's a, and, and to be an influencer at that point, right before the 08 crash too. So, I mean, had to be another dynamic. That is really a fascinating story. So I, I one of my other mentors was a woman named Carol Cohn. Carol Cohn is the godmother of cause marketing. And I knew her through my advertising industry. And I, I basically sat down with her. She has a, one of the most well-read uh, highly trafficked Harvard Business Review articles about cause of marketing from 2002. Very ahead of her time, woman. And she gave me all this guidance to understand that if you're building a community of Gen Xers, don't think of them as patients. Think of them as consumers that corporations would still want to sell crap to. So this notion of cause marketing or cause-related consumer advocacy was where my head was to sustain the organization. So instead of saying, hey, help us cure cancer, which is a, a load of BS when you're a young adult, it was more along the lines of 
these young adults need fertility preservation. They need mental health services. They still need bank accounts. They have a, a, prof, a, a, a profound affinity for brands that care about this cause than brands that don't. So nearly all of our money came from corporate contributions and we were not doing it dependent, which is why we kind of sailed through 08, 09, and 2010 without having to deal with what we now know is the fragility of the supply economy of donors in the nonprofit model. Wow. My head just exploded. I know. <laughs> well, I want to transition because that's all so powerful of what happened with stupid cancer. I know you're kind of taking a next step toward off script. What is what caused that transition to happen and what you know kind of redirected your sales? Is it like you've checked that box and you want your visions bigger or what is what is this, Matt? How much time is this show? <laughs> Six hours. How long do you okay. need it to be? <laughs> Fine. Start the clock. The truth is, Livestrong in 2006 put together a strategic, there's a little geekery here, but just for the history of our, your listeners, Livestrong, the CDC, and the NCI put together a strategic plan, aspirational goal to rectify some of the medical health inequities facing Gen Xers and millennials. Bravo. And I reread that strat plan in the summer of 2018. And everything had been done. And while no one could have foreseen mobile, you know, and TikTok and all these things happening, to the extent to which we aspired to create a new normal and a new standard and new guidelines and new policies for AYA, adolescent young adult, was done. Hmm. So I felt a semblance of mission accomplished with an asterisk. The profound dissonance in equity, in service delivery, access, age-appropriate psychosocial services was there. And that Sisyphus, me, was no longer needed to push the boulder up the hill with our extraordinary community of 70 other nonprofit organizations. And that was time. And uh, I was in LA three consecutive weekends in a row in late August 2018, and I just had it. I couldn't do it anymore. I'm on a, I love telling the story because I'm on a roof deck with a dear friend before I go to LAX to fly home again. And I just say to her, I can't do this anymore. All she said was, whatever you do, you're going to be fine. Told my wife, who surprisingly said, what took you so long? <laughs> She's uh, like told my dad, down. who also surprisingly right said, what to took you so long? <laughs> and then told my staff who literally lost their blank. So... <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, that was it. It was a combination of just fatigue and exhaustion. The only way up was out. And I found this really, if there are any listeners that have been founders who've exited and left their baby in someone else's hands, I share with you this, that moving on is hard. Stepping down is hard, but knowing when is the hardest thing of all. And that was my reconciliation in August of 2018. And then I spent eight months, which will pardon the metaphor, uh, de-Velcroing myself <laughs> from the sedimentary layers of 14 years starting the yeah. company. And it was the most cathartic process I'd ever gone through. And my last day was on January uh, 31st, 2019. Hey friends, taking a quick pause from today's episode to say that we just love to connect with you. And the best way to do so is to join the good community. It's free. Just head on over to weareforgood.com slash hello, and we can connect with all the resources, tips, tools, and show notes to help you do more for your mission. We can't wait to get to know you. Now, let's get back to this awesome, feel-good conversation. I think anyone who is in the, who's a nonprofit purist, who's purely in it for the mission, 
you're doing exactly what you should be doing. You are eradicating the problem of which you are trying to solve in the world. And once we feel like we've kind of pushed that as far as we can go, then our work is done and we move to the next thing. And that's what I love so much about your story. It's, it's because you have this obvious passion. You have enthusiasm. You have clearly a, a justice core um, to sort of equalize things. I do too. And it's like I just think of someone with your talent and your uh, fearlessness and the sort of unapologetic nature of your personality. It's like you could go and take that into other spaces where there are massive gaps and I just think what we're going to see with you um, and this new company is just going to be extraordinary. So talk, I love this topic that you have here today about why you shouldn't start a charity. Talk to our team of uh, listeners and community members who work at nonprofits and tell them why you <laughs> believe this. So I'll just start with this. There's a very narrow window between something bad happened to you and what should I do about it? Mm-hmm. And that's a niche moment in time for any individual. Someone dies, you want to do this, a car accident, doesn't matter what the cause is. Nothing matters to people until they enter the cause. And very few people proactively say, I'm going to start a cancer charity for no reason. You know, so you want to be affected by something and say, I want to be changed. So this narrow window is a often a, uh, a lack of objectivity because you're emotional and you're in grief and you want to do something and it's not okay that you're facing this inequity you want to write. And most people in that window that I found over 20 years uh, don't have business experience. They don't understand and they have no reason to have to understand that just because it says nonprofit 501c3 doesn't mean anything other than this is still a company. You need revenue, you need expense lines, you need TPS reports, you know, you need all sorts of scalable business models and fiscal, you know, forecasting. You need all of this as if you're doing a regular, normal investor backed seed round startup from friends and family, except you don't have that part. Who's going to front you all the cash to do this? And you can't make money off of it if you're the only employee and the IRS totally flags nonprofits for the first three years and your audit costs you more than the money you brought in. So these little things that kind of just show up that you weren't expecting, there is no, should you start a charity one-on-one show? And here are the 10 things to be mindful of, except there are two people I will tell your listeners about that I see as dogmatic intervention in this window of should I or shouldn't I? And one of them is Dan Pallotta. Oh my don't gosh. know him, Oh, we, love we love Dan Pilata. He doesn't know that we love he him. He doesn't know, but yeah, he's <laughs> okay. on he's on our ungettable get list. Dan, please, we want to have you on our show. Love but you, please, Dan, Dan is a going. personal friend of mine. Yes! Okay, personal Great. friend. Like, Thank you. Like 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 uh, on on text. People need to and go I, on and look at his TED talk. I will yeah, drop it in the it. show notes. It's, it's just game changing if you are in the nonprofit sector. The way we think about charities all wrong is one of the most watched TED talk videos in TED history for a very good reason. And again. Even if you're already, oops, I started the charity, I don't know what to do, or should I get out? I have one leg in, or should I start it, or whatever. It's almost like required reading and listening and watching for anyone that does work in the sector. I used to onboard every employee before I hired them even, watch this, and still decide if you want to work here. And that is just what he stands for. I've been on his show. He's been on my show. We once both 
destroyed Charity Navigator on the air together. <laughs> and then they changed their entire profile to include Impact. And we once tore Guidestar apart together. And then they changed their Impact standards. So he and I go back to this, like we're both, you know, I'm way less kind than he is. So we both just <laughs> wonder twinned ourselves to, to represent the disparities and desperation of what is wrong with the business of nonprofit, not the purpose of nonprofit, but the other guy. And if you nod your heads, you know, we're already best friends. You'll be even better best friends is a guy named Vule. And oh, Vule. We love him too. <laughs> All right. See, we're done. We're done. Good okay, night. Goodbye. Good night, everyone. Thanks everybody for being here. Right. So Vule had a, had a, a blog. We knew each other. He, he was saying everything in my head that I had already been through for five years. And it was nice to have a little, little voice of Matt without being the voice of Matt. And he pivoted because he finally started getting money to be a little less controversial nomenclature wise. And it's now called nonprofitaf.com. And again, required subscription level, like, like toxic zombie content. You have to listen and watch and read every day. So between Dan and Vu, I encourage, as apparently you do, these are the guys that can help you build some sense of objective you know, consciousness as to are you doing what makes the most sense to accomplish what you want to change in the world? Is it worth it? Are you struggling? Because the nonprofit business model is flawed from the gate. And the great paradox of the of all of this to me is that we are the change agents in the world for equity, for making justice, <laughs> making sure that justice is met, that making sure the underserved are served, that we are the equalizers. Yet, I mean, I would get on my soapbox. John's going to get nervous. Yeah, that's um, yeah that that <laughs> really are. We are not treated equi equitably, you know, in how we are viewed and how we are paid and how we are ranked and how, you know, we are valued on 990s. And so, I mean, <laughs> yes. don't even get me started on the name nonprofit. I mean, John and Julie know that I have this mega goal to like rename the word yep. nonprofit. That is the worst name for our sector. I don't want to be something that we're not. I want to be something <laughs> that we are, you know, and that talks about what we do, which is we are, you know, for us, we are for good. All of these causes are are for good. So I think one thing that you need to consider monetizing is a peanut gallery. When you have these interviews, when charity net, I, I just see myself like in the corner, like eating popcorn, just eating popcorn, <laughs> my eyes huge. And it would be fantastic. Um, so I have to think that if you are talking to Vu, you're talking to Dan, you're on Newsweek, you're, you're in People Magazine, you have probably crossed paths with some extraordinary people in your life with extraordinary stories. Do you have one that sort of touched your heart and has stuck with you all these years that you'd like to share with our community? Yeah, it has a, an unfortunate ending. But I think this is the reality of having the work in oncology. And so for the founders and the executives out there who do work in this sector in any cause where there is mortality, it is a terrible privilege to have to develop a thick skin mm -hmm. that you may or may not have expected, especially if you are the people you serve. The one story I'll tell is of Annie Goodman. You can Google her. Annie Goodman was my co-host on the Stupid Cancer Show for a couple of years. 
she was a triple negative breast cancer patient living with this disease. And she was, she came from like MSNBC and Fox. She was a showrunner, producer, media, insane, great on the air, good personality, could have had her own show. And she and I had the most extraordinary chemistry. I've never really had co-hosts. I had, I had, I've had a few, but Annie stands out. And then she relapsed. And over the course of the four months leading up to her untimely passing, she still did the show with me every Monday and talked about what she was going through. And I, I, I don't normally get emotional about this, but if I had to peg one person amongst the dozens that passed who I was close to and the thousands who passed that I just knew because they're part of our community, she hits home the most as to why I do what I do and why I still do what I do, which is that every day you have, or I'll channel Tolkien again. It is, it's Gandalf said, and I'm sorry, Colbert will Love approve Lord that I'm using a Gandalf Love reference. Love it, keep going. Is that we must, we, we must make the most of the time that has been given to us. And if there's anyone that I've ever known who's done just that, it was Andy Goodman. So I will, I will, um, I will attribute this show in memory of Annie. She sounds like an awesome person. So thank you for sharing that. We really appreciate it. Yeah. And, and, and what a raw and authentic portrayal of what you're trying to do by her kind of fighting through symptoms and, and, and her reality to keep sharing that with the community that speaks to the passion and the belief so much in what you are doing and what you're trying to deliver um, for your community. It's really inspiring. We always ask our guests, what's one good thing? This is a practical tip or a secret to success that you've had, something that could be implemented today to our listeners. Do you have something? I would, I would argue that you always want to be proven wrong. I love that. Okay, go deeper. Keep going. (laughs) I have a natural predilection for questioning everything. You can't tell. Why is it this? (laughs) Why is it that? I almost named my show Help Me Understand. It's just a desire to never accept why what is, is. And if you don't spend your life questioning everything, then you're falling victim to, I would call it conformist complacency, whether intentional or not. So now I'm on this new pedestal running this broadcast media company, and I look at the nonprofit sector as an uncomfortable conversation. Mm -hmm. Not that the intent isn't necessary, and sure, everyone loves their tax deductions, but is it truly, to channel Dan, a sustainable business ecosystem when it is so easily just shattered and destroyed when completely dependent on economic pros of average Joes. So my, 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 my very long answer to your very short question <laughs> is to always try to make an argument and then be proven wrong. No. That is That's awesome. really th- an amazing thought. And I think it's okay like to 
I, I mean, this this concept of not everybody has the ability to come into this space and and share that part of them. I mean, we talk a lot about that and just how vulnerability leads to empathy, you know, and empathy can lead to action and can it can move mountains. And so even if you're not someone who, you know, is like Matthew and I, who always goes there, who can always say it. It doesn't, I mean, I, I would share any part of my life because that's just how I'm wired, you know, and in people, there are a lot of people that are not like that and we have to respect that, but there is space for you to come in and listen and be a listener and lean in at the level that you're comfortable with. But I do think we have to have these conversations because they help us feel like we're not alone and they help us grow and they help us evolve as humans. And the more that we're listening and the more we're leaned in and learning, that's when I think great movements begin to, to kind of pick up their steam. And I feel like, you know, you're, your charity, your nonprofit is a living, breathing example of that and how many lives have been touched. So that was a really outstanding answer. And I think too, like it just so connects with what you're doing now. And I know you haven't gone fully into that, but I just think of, or I, you know, from looking at the shows that you're putting out now, it's all about not just accepting the status quo, but it's challenging that on behalf of patients. And so I wonder if you just kind of as we wrap up, just tell us a little bit about how people can get connected with you and the content that you're creating now um, through your new brand. Yeah. Uh, I think I could sum up the business model of Offscript Media as a Reese's peanut butter cup in that I've been able to take all the benefits and detriments of the nonprofit universe and all the learnings and teachings thereof and blend that with all the benefits and detriments of the advertising, marketing, and media not social media, media world with business and accomplished both at the same time. You can be for purpose, for good, socially responsible, have accountability, transparency, and not have to be donor dependent. But at the same time, we can produce content that transforms lives and then donate money to the nonprofits that I support and believe in and raise them up. So I feel as if what I'm doing now is obviously a natural extension of my being a shock jock on the radio for 15 years, but I can now understand the loopholes and the insights and the fragilities that I can put small dents in that universe to improve the, the unfortunate circumstances that lay underneath the sediment of where charities sort of fall into the cracks. Um, the work we're doing now is incredibly pr profound. We celebrated one year anniversary yesterday mm. as oh, we recorded this. Year. But it's also my 25th cancerversary, which is oh, silver. Oh, that's great. So there's a phenomenal confluence of, of the universe doing its thing that I can get up every day, slightly more creaky. My kids are 10 and a half. Uh, every day is a privilege to figure out how you make a dent. So how can people connect with you? Because even if you don't think that there's a space for you in this, in this conversation, whether because you're not a nonprofit, you're not a marketer, to me, there is a space for everyone to learn how to be an advocate for yourself, for your loved one. I think Offscript could, could be, an, it sounds like it's an incredible resource for people that can galvanize this movement that you're talking about. Where are you on social? How can people connect with you? I think LinkedIn is where it's at now, at least for me and my industry and my community and the leadership that I'm convening on what we're doing. 
but people can find out. I'm surprisingly the only Matthew Zachary on podcasts. So I'd normally say subscribe to Add a Patience wherever you get, but just search for Matthew Zachary wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm the only one. So <laughs> and I if you're a little paranoid that you're going to call him Zachary Matthew, like I have been this entire podcast, it's okay. It'll probably still pull up It'll in a Google search engine. <laughs> I have been called much much worse. <laughs> I just, I think that your approach and again, the unapologetic nature of how you are really being an advocate and an ambassador for what was really a voiceless uh, population is an extraordinary thing. When we talk about people who are going out and being the change they want to see in the world, I love how you're doing it. I love how you're connecting. And I think that bringing that rawness makes people feel like, oh, I think I'm going to be seen here. I think I can be heard here. And I think when we create those authentic communities, that, again, that is when the world changes. And you're living proof of that. And I just wish you the best in your company um, and appreciate all the time that you've spent with us today. Thanks for coming on. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope Matthew has encouraged you to be a fearless advocate for yourself and amplify your voice to build something the world needs. Did you know every week we share our best roundup of content freebies and notes heard on each episode? Head over to weareforgood.com backslash hello to join our mailing list. And you'll hear from us weekly with resources and tips to help you do more for your mission. If you love what you heard today, would you stop what you're doing and hit subscribe? It really does help more people find us and join our good community. Thanks, friends. Our production hero is also a tireless advocate for the little guy. It's Julie Confer. Hello. Our theme song is Sunray by Remy Borspoon. Go rock this week. Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. We can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.